In this episode, we will be discussing suicide prevention with an emphasis on knowing the warning signs among youth. If you or someone you know is experiencing suicidal thoughts or a crisis, please reach out immediately to the Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255 or text HOME to the Crisis Text Line at 741-741. These services are free and confidential. Mental health challenges are often kept in the closet or even swept under the rug. We know they can affect anyone, from adults to children, and the struggle is real. Join us as we talk about relevant topics with mental health experts. Welcome to Equip Online, a place for hope and help. Welcome to Equip Online. This week, we're going to be looking at preventing teen suicide and how to notice the warning signs. Our guests today are Jeremy Sprott and Sherry Burkhard. Uh, Jeremy is a licensed professional counselor and CEO of Mental Health Solutions in Houston. Sherry is the executive director of Mosaics of Mercy, which we're so thrilled about the partnership that you guys have with us on, yeah, right over here (laughs) for uh, Equip Online. And, you know, excited just to um, get into this conversation with you guys together uh, I think it's a very important one. It's one that is very relevant right now, and it's so important to learn about. And so we're going to look at this topic about particularly how parents can know if their child is suicidal and what they can do uh, to help them uh, through that. And, and so we just really want to learn about that. And so as we get started, I think it's important on this topic to kind of know a little bit about each of your backgrounds and why this topic of suicide prevention is important to you. So maybe, uh, Jeremy, maybe we'll, we'll kick it to you first, and then Sherry will let you share a little bit about that. So. Okay. Um, you know, I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life, like a lot of teenage boys, and, you know, went off to college and eventually, you know, landed in a kind of biblical studies track and started into youth ministry. And so I was in youth ministry for 10 years and really was doing that kind of pastoral care of of working with teens and families and had no clue as to what I was doing. But you were there in the trenches, you know, working with with kids in crisis and that sort of thing. And eventually, you know, my eldership would just encourage me to go back and say, you know, counselors and that sort of thing. So I went back and got my master's degree in counseling and, you know, after the 10 years of, of youth ministry, then I went full-time into, into counseling. And I just happened to end up working at a psychiatric hospital that had a mobile crisis assessment team. And eventually got onto that team and started, you know, fanning out into the community at all hours of the night, 24-7. We'd just be on call and show up at the crisis. Um, typically in, in emergency rooms and that sort of thing, and be, you know, go to bedside, you know, and, and talk to the patient, talk to the individual about, you know, they were there because they, either they tried to kill themselves or were feel, feeling very suicidal or some kind of major crisis event happened at home that, you know, they had to, you know, call us in. And, but I don't know if, I kind of fell in love with that, just being there in the moment of, of crisis and trying to help those families through through those moments. And so eventually I said, you know what, I'm going to start my own company and where I can I can handle, do it the right way and ethically and morally and bring my 
my faith into this this practice as well. And so started that in 2007, I mean, okay. 17, 2017. So. Okay. Wow. Real calling, uh, difficult thing, but obviously a powerful uh, season and, and time to be with people that are really struggling in those crises. And so somewhere along the line, you, you met Sherry. I know apparently you guys had worked some together in the past. So Sherry, tell us a little about your background and, and why this is an important topic for you. So I started um, on my personal mental health journey really when I was 15 years old. And I think I've talked on this on Equip before, but I went to treatment for an eating disorder and depression and, and a whole long list of struggles. But it was actually a nurse who um, really was very impactful on that journey. She's still part of my life today. She's also a minister as well. But um, that was why I chose then to go into nursing because I really wanted to give back um, the way really I felt like she did um, gave to me during my time in need. So um, I focused on psychiatric nursing when I was in school. Um, in addition to just my regular nursing, um, I added hours in psychiatric nursing and focused on that. And um, graduated, started working in psychiatric hospitals as a charge nurse um, over um, both adult psych, and then I did child and adolescent psych outpatient. Um, and then um, I became a mom and kind of took a little hiatus. Um, <laughs> and um, then um, really saw a gap in the community, just um, as a person in long-term recovery, I've, it's been now 30 years um, for me, um, people knew to come to me for resources and then also because of my nursing background. And just the more I saw that and the other founders of Mosaic saw that, we decided this was an area we could really create change in the community. So we formed um, Mosaic to Mercy right about the same time as Mental Health Solutions started. And so and while we were starting Mosaics, I was also working for Jeremy um, with Mental Health Solutions and seeing um, patients in the emergency room. And then, um, and then Jeremy came on as a board member. So that's how our paths crossed. But I will say my interest in suicide has been um, because of the people that I've lost in my life to suicide. Um, being a person that went to treatment um, so young and grew up in 12-step rooms, um, I um, have lost a lot of, of dear friends um, to suicide. And so we actually, the theme of Mosaics this year is for the one, and that's what my earrings say. And it's that reminder that um, I'm doing this for for those ones in my life um, that I've lost, and so that's why I'm I'm here. Wow, that's really powerful. And, you know, and just to get into this topic, you know, th in this episode, we want to focus on one demographic that suicide uh, affects in a in a big way, and that is our adolescents and teens. But obviously, suicide is something that is. Uh, it affects all different ages, all different kinds of people, um, but we want to look specifically today at this age group a little bit. And so as we think about that, I'd love to get y'all's thoughts on, number one, is teen suicide on the rise? And maybe talk a little bit about that and, and why. What are some of the factors behind that? I can speak, you know, directly to the patients that we see, the individuals that we've been seeing th throughout the pandemic. I, I've seen some mixed studies on, I, th I think initially everybody felt like, you know, it, it was definitely on the rise and they're, they're continuing, continuing to dig down into the statistics and there's, there's some mixed reviews. So 
yeah, you know, the jury's still out in terms of the numbers, but in in reality, what we are seeing are far more severe cases. And so, whereas in the past, you know, we might see a lot of teens coming into the emergency rooms having some more suicidal gestures. So not 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 the true attempts, but just more gestures, maybe taking two or three pills or some slight superficial cutting, and they weren't really trying to kill themselves. Now, over the last, you know, six to, to 12 months, we have seen more and more really serious overdoses. Um, and so that, from my perspective, I don't know if the number's higher, but the severity of cases is definitely um, higher. And so it just tells me the, the desperation is worse. Um, the intentions are, are escalating in terms of moving from, you know, I'm, I'm just really depressed, I'm have some suicidal thoughts to I, I plan on killing myself and I'm acting on it in, in pretty serious ways, whether it is overdoses or, you know, can get very dramatic very quickly in, in, in certain circumstances, you know, jumping out of buildings and off of overpasses and things like that. Yeah. Uh, yes, it is on the rise in terms of the severity of cases and... Yeah, I mean, we can speak more to kind of what we have been seeing over over the pandemic, but yeah. I don't know. I know Sherry has a few thoughts. Perspective on. Well, since I'm not seeing um, the patients in the emergency room, I actually was doing a speaking event for the community, and so I surveyed fifty. I think it was fifty-five counselors in the community of what they've been seeing since COVID, and the statistic I got back was. When I asked what um, amount of the counselors had seen an increase in suicidal ideation in their practice, so just the thoughts of suicide, it was a 68% increase um, since COVID had started. Um, and then really they saw the area most, that now that 68% includes teens and adults because I, I did not break that out. But what I did ask is what age group they feel like they've seen most struggling and um, the two areas that came back were the 18 to 25, the young adults, and then the teens. So that is the area that the counselors really feel like have been most affected um, during the time of the pandemic. The numbers, like Jeremy said, for like for 2021 aren't out yet. And then 2020, they're really still trying to gather all that data. Um, but we know like our call volume has gone up 46 percent. Um at Mosaic since COVID started. And so um, while those may not all be um, suicide attempts, a, a large majority are family members seeking resources for someone who has an attempt or ideation. Wow. So I'd love to, and the, the second part of that question, to be curious y'all's thoughts is really the, the why, you know, again, why do, why has there been such an increase? I watched a documentary recently and it was even looking at some around 2010, 2011, with the, the dawn of social media, when it really started to really take off, there was dramatic spikes in uh, adolescent suicide rates were, were jumping quite a bit. And so I'm curious, y'all's perspective on what are some contributing factors to the increase in youth, whether it's ideation or attempts, whatever, but, you know, what's contributing to that? Some of the first things that come to my, my mind are the connectivity issues, um, lack of support, feeling supported is, is a very common thing among people who end up trying to, to commit suicide. 
They just don't feel supported. They don't feel loved. They don't feel connected. And with COVID, we're so disconnected in so many different ways. And so I know part of that is is the social interaction that, that the kids were used to having. Now they're stuck at home. I know some of that's improving, but they've been stuck at home for so long. They can't go out. They can't go be with their friends. They're they're just isolated, even more than teens isolate themselves as it is at home because a lot of times teens are trying to push back and stay in their room and ex- exhort their kind of independence. And um, now it's exacerbated because not only if I'm depressed already, I'm I'm kind of isolated from my family anyway. I just kind of pull back any, anyway. If I had some good friends at school that support group has, has dried up. And so I, I am on an island of misery all by myself. And, and so when you're alone in the dark with your thoughts, that can get very scary and dangerous very quickly. So I know that that's part of it. Um, I think some of the things that I've noticed is that there's a statistic or study that talks about if there's two or more major crisis events in a year, you're at risk for a mental health struggle. Well, I think we've all faced, we've all checked off more than our two. I mean, we checked them all off in 2020 and we're off to that in 2021. So, you know, there's that, that just increased stress level for both the parents and the teens and the parents aren't as available if their stress level is high and I know that, especially when I was working for Jeremy, and we've talked about this, one of the things I would notice going from room to room in the emergency room, the common things the kids say, because we usually would talk to the kids separately from the parents just so we could get both stories, was, I don't want to be a burden. I don't want to add stress to my parents. And so, you know, we are in stressful times. And if kids don't feel like they're going to add to that stress, they're not going to speak up because they don't want to do that. Um I think the other thing is that it was back when I don't remember which war it was, World War One or World War Two, but I've read this several times during the pandemic that um, at first you have this, we're all in this together, right? Like yeah. the crisis happens and we're all in this together. And even look at last week with the ice storm and everything, everybody kind of pitches in and helps. Well, then the crisis passes, but some people maybe aren't living in their house anymore <laughs> or <True>. because they're <laughs> bus pipes yeah, right. or, you know, and, but other people are moving on. So see that then there becomes this, it doesn't feel like we're all in this together. And those ones that struggle with depression then find themselves, you know, in a more isolated place and comparing themselves to maybe other people being able to move on. So I really think with 2020 and 2021, that's been a dynamic that's been set up for our teens. Wow. Wow. That's yeah, Jeremy. And I'd, yeah, definitely. And I, I'd go back to to your original point in terms of that documentary is the social di- dilemma and and what and truly asking what what does social media in general what has that done to our children's mental health? And over and over, we just see them being so connected to their phones; it becomes a part of who they are. It's their part of their identity, and um, which. We have to address that and figure out how to make that relationship a healthy relationship because um, it's here to stay. It's not going away. It's only gonna we're only gonna be more connected um, through technology, which in turn some often disconnects us from real human interaction. And so, but they don't see it that way. They this, that's their community right there in front of them. That screen, that space, that that 
whatever app that they're, I'd venture to say, addicted to. Um, there's a lot of addictions that, that you know, <laughs> you go to a restaurant and the entire family, everybody's, you know, not engaging with each other. But, you know, we've all seen this, that scene. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm guilty. We're all guilty of that at some level. But it's tragic to hear stories over and over and over of a parent, you know, stepping up and trying to discipline their child appropriately and say, hey, you've, you've messed up. You've lost your phone privilege. And they take away that phone. And the child's immediate reaction is either, you know, a fit of rage. They're just they just totally lose it. And maybe they've done it before. You know, they get really mad and just storm off into the room. But so many times those kids storm off to the bathroom and go for the razor blade. Mm -hmm. They storm off. And in a, in a moment of impulsivity and anger and outrage, they, they take the whole bottle of Tylenol. And they just kind of black out and lose all sense wow. of, of reality. And they're so because they're so angry, number one, and just overwhelmed by being disconnected from all their friends, all their social interactions, all their I have to be connected. And so it's just just this automatic impulsive my life's over. I'm already in trouble, now my life's over and I'm never so it's it's really scary. Yeah, I mean, you, you guys said so much that my brain's really going a lot here. But I mean, you know, on that, I think there's a word to us as parents. You know, it could do a whole separate thing on just the appropriate way to discipline, because uh, you really have to treat that like you would a, a an addict. You know, there's there's a detox sort of way that you detox off of an addiction. And let's just face it, technology and cell phones are an addiction. But just a cold turkey, pull it away, can create a desperate situations sometimes and they're going to take desperate measures whether it's taking a bunch of pills or whatever so I think there's wisdom in how you go about that process even as a parent so I think that's a really great perspective Jeremy to think about and I love what you said Sherry something that stood out was parents you know learning how to self-regulate our own stress levels because I, I know I've been guilty of that like I'm putting off that I'm I'm stressed and uh, I'm, I'm kind of sending this sign to my kids. Don't bother me right now. Don't bring your problems into my world. Cause I've got my own and I'm, you know, and, and after a while they're like, well, I can't really bring anything to mom and dad because they just don't seem like I don't want to add to their plate. I don't want to stress them out even more. Um, so that was a really great word about, you know, we need to take our own mental health seriously as parents so that we can create those opportunities to connect with our kids. So appreciate, appreciate that. Um, let's, let's keep the conversation going. And so one thing that seems to come up a lot with suicide is, you know, a lot of times that there's that story of like parent, you know, whether it's parents or loved ones that experience a suicide um, of someone they love. And you hear the story of, we had no idea. It just completely shocked us. It completely took us by surprise. I want to speak to that. Are there, are there signs that we can, better look for if, if someone's heading down that path and is there any predictability to if someone's really on the edge of suicide or help us understand that a little bit? Yes, there are signs. Um, I'll speak briefly to your first point that yes, many times there were, there was no forethought. It was a very impulsive decision in the moment, in the heat of the moment. I just kind of lost it and and, and decided to go take a bunch of pills. And um, where there were no red flags or real obvious red flags, even for the individual themselves, because they look back and they think, I can't, you know, if, if they survive and we're talking to them later, they're like, I can't believe I did that. I just, 
I just snapped and I was just so upset. And in that moment, I just wanted to end it all. But looking back, I, I regret it. And so many times you don't see the red flags. But, you know, red flags are very well studied. I mean, there's lots of information out there on things to look for. Um, you know, like I was saying earlier, teens, teens tend to isolate anyway because they just want to be cool and left alone and that sort of thing. But if you if you start noticing more of that to where they're really, really resisting being in your presence, they're really, it's really hard to fake, fake not being depressed. If you're clinically depressed, it's really hard to, to kind of cover that up completely. And so I think a lot of times we just kind of push it off to say, oh, they're just being typical teens. They're being more, we're seeing a lot more um, oppositional defiance in, in depressed teens. And so you might think it's more just, oh, they're just being defiant and angry and just pushing back against our uh, parental authority. But it could be more depression that's underlying. And I, I know traditionally we say that, you know, teen boys will express their depression through through anger, but I think we're seeing it among across the gender spectrum in terms of um, just that those kind of ang- looking for increased anger outbursts. What you might think is my child's being irrational. Why, why are they thinking that way? And just pushing back against everything. Um, so isolating behaviors, um, starting to fail in their in their schools, uh, school performance. So um, worsening, you know, motivation, less motivation and, and showing up for practices or saying, you know what, I, I don't want to be on the swim team anymore and just pulling away from everything that they used to be involved in and connected with for no good good reason. Because a lot of times they're not going to tell you that, hey, mom, I'm depressed. You know, they're just kind of coping with it and dealing with it on their own by being less involved and less responsibility because that responsibility then creates this conti- even more stress on them. And so if they, they're just trying to self-regulate by pulling away from every responsibility. Um. I think Jeremy answered a lot of the signs. I think one thing I want to point out, because this is kind of a common, I guess you would say, myth that I've encountered, um, and even particularly in the church. Um, and it actually was an experience I had with, with my own child where a small group leader said there had been a suicide in the community. And, um, so we were meeting as parents and we said, now none of these kids would struggle with this because they're good kids. Well, my, I knew that my son was at home struggling. Um, and I have, I'm not sharing something he hasn't shared. He actually did a podcast with us on his on his struggle. So, um, you know, and that was something when I was growing up, um, because if you looked on my outside, I was I was a cheerleader. I was a straight A student. Um, you know, I checked all those boxes that a parent would want for their child. I went to church. I went to youth group, um, but I was struggling. And so. I think sometimes we think that these signs are going to come in maybe the stereotypical way. And um, I don't think that suicide doesn't discriminate. Um, it doesn't just occur to this one group of people. So not that we need to be walking around as parents paranoid all the time because, you know, hypervigilance doesn't help either. 
But I think if we come from a common ground of understanding that this could happen to our child, so we do need to be aware of those signs because sometimes we miss them because we're thinking this wouldn't happen to my child because we're checking all these boxes. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's a a really great point. Um, Just to don't be, well, I don't see these signs. Everything looks to be fine on the outside, but don't be blinded by it either. That that can happen in different ways, different to anybody. Yeah. Well, and just kind of unpacking this a little bit more, um, there's a, there's terminology out there. One of them I'd love to get you guys thoughts on. What is the difference between um, active suicidal thoughts and passive suicidal thoughts? I think that's an important one to kind of understand the distinction between those. So passive suicidality is, you know, you might hear somebody talking about, you know, I really wish I just didn't have to go through this anymore. Be easier if I wasn't here. Um, and so the, the idea of if I wasn't alive, th- things would be easier. So if someone is coming from a Christian background, they think, you know, if I was in heaven, if I died and went to heaven, that would be a relief. That would be a good thing that I wouldn't have to be here experiencing these things. And so it's more kind of this passive kind of, I, I don't want to feel this way. I don't want to be living like this anymore. And so I'd be better off dead probably, but I have no intention to, to take my life. I have no plan to take my life. Um, sometimes someone with passive suicidal ideation will do things that, that um, look very suicidal. Um, they might be into, into cutting behaviors. And so they'll, they'll be cutting, especially with, with teenagers and cutting, um, you know, the parents will see that and, and automatically think my child is trying to kill themselves. And that's not always the case. They might be you know, they'll, they'll say it's, it's a relief, you know, to cut it. It's, it's an emotional release of, of all, of all that pain. And so they have no intention of dying or killing themselves. But, you know, the longer you stay in that kind of passive area without getting help, it can, it can start bleeding over and end up being active, um, suicidal thought and thinking where no longer am I just wishing I was dead. I am thinking about how to kill myself. So, you start looking at internet search histories on, on your child's phone or the internet or whatever, and you're starting to see, you know, they'll, they'll research how many pills of this medication do I need to take that will kill me. And they start planning or thinking about ways of, of taking their life. And that's more active. I have an intention to do it. And sometimes I don't have a plan. I haven't thought it out that far, but you're not too many steps away from beginning to think about how you might do that. Yeah. Anything else on your perspective on on that? I think one of the things, and it's actually Adam Bertosh, who I think you guys have had on, Uh or he was supposed to speak at the Equip conference, but he um, actually has a blog he wrote on his website that talks about um, with suicide or even just that ideation, those passive thoughts, I don't want to be here anymore. There's usually some part of your story that you don't want to be part of your story anymore. So you start thinking, I have to end the whole story instead of just whatever that part is. Because we all know those times where like, um, I liken it in my life to like my head just gets underwater and I can't get it up to get perspective. Um, so I think that a lot of times with that passive ideation, that's where where it is. You know, you don't maybe have the impulse to take action, but you've decided maybe I don't like this part. And so I just need to get rid of all of this part. (laughs) So, wow. Wow. No, that's really, 
that's really interesting just to kind of think through that process. Well, I'd love to shift a little bit to some practical things that we can do. Um, and to kind of begin that, can you guys speak to what are some different types of interventions based on the levels that we might be seeing? You know, maybe it's we come across what seems to be passive suicidal talk, or maybe, you know, just, just walk us through what, what are some, if we see this, here's an appropriate intervention. If y'all could speak to some of that from a practical standpoint. Yeah, you tackle that first. <laughs> Mix it up here a little bit. Sure. Yeah. I mean, we're both yeah. in that world. But yes, we're yeah. both in that world. Um, and and really, I think that it's great. To, to, one of the things that um, I've talked about with my husband is that, and it's a quote too, but I think by Benjamin Franklin, if you don't have a plan, you're planning to fail. And so a lot of times we don't come up with a plan as a family for when this happens. I mean, who really sits down and talks about, well, if my child becomes suicidal, what do I do? Like we don't come up with that plan, right? Because we don't think our child will ever get there. Um, But when my son was born, he had a medical um, issue and he turned blue and I had to do CPR multiple times. Well, I'm, I'm an RN, like I should know that. But when it happens in that moment and it's your child, like all of that, just like, poof gone. Right. I'm I'm getting to your question, but, but so I really think this is important for families to know, regardless of how you think your, the mental health of your child is, is to, to talk about this before you get to the crisis, because we wait for the crisis and then it's this panic, like what in the world do I do? Um, so when families call us, if there's that passive suicidal ideation, um, we're going to, you know, suggest counselors. Um, now we are going to suggest, and if they call mosaics, we're going to help them find a counselor that can see them within a short period of time. We don't want them to wait. And, and this is an issue right now in the community. We don't want them to wait three weeks, four right. weeks. If they have that pass- passive suicidal ideation, you know, we want to go ahead and get them seen so that they can get an assessment. Um, so they can do that in the counselor's office. Now, if, um, and I'll let Jeremy speak to the emergency room side, but on the psychiatric hospital, they can always, you know, go to the local psychiatric hospital and have an assessment um, for free. Um, but they just need to know that there is the possibility, if those thoughts are there, that they could be admitted to the hospital. Yeah. Um, and then there's the time where there's the medical emergency. They have taken those pills. They have, you know, cut they have done something that they're medically at risk then going to the emergency room is because they're going to need to be medically stabilized before they receive any of those other levels of care um but I think as a family having a plan about what that looks like and what you're comfortable with so that when that crisis hits you know okay you know we've already talked about this and and this is the step we're going to take yeah that's a great word really good Jeremy anything to Add on that, or yeah, I would say you just need to program mosaics of mercy into your <laughs> your uh, in case of emergencies phone numbers. Yeah. We're not crisis <laughs> crisis program. Jeremy's phone number. That's right. No, <laughs> yeah. we really appreciate the partnership with yeah. mosaics too, because that that is the difficult thing piece for parents is finding providers. Mm-hmm. A lot of times you might go to an ER and they'll give you this packet, this list of. 50 different numbers and resources and they start going down this list and after five or six no's we're not taking new new clients 
Or you call the number where a, a psychiatrist had literally killed himself and his name was still on this list that was passing around through the community. As a parent, you're going to be like, my kid seems fine now. He's, he's calmed down. I, I, we're just right. going to let this one pass. And then they go without getting help. Um, the lots of different interventions to be to be done, and, and then it depends on how severe the case is. So if they're in the emergency room and we're doing our assessment, if they're more passively suicidal, and you know may have been that way for months, and it's just now coming out. If they don't have any intention or or plan to act on that, and it's a clinical judgment piece at that point. Um, then we'll set them up with mosaics. We'll set them up with outpatient programs. And there's different levels of, of treatment that a, a, a parent can look into for their child. There's partial hospitalization programs where, you know, the kid would still need to take off school for about a two-week period where they're going like Monday through Friday, 9 to 2, to this very intensive therapeutic program where they're seen by a psychiatrist every day. So it's almost as if they're in the psych hospital, but they go home at night. So they're seen by a psychiatrist, they're, they're, they look at, you know, medication management, if that's a piece they, the parent wants to add. Um, a step down from that is called uh, IOP, or intensive outpatient, where it's like three days a week for a few hours every day. So it's just like um, group, group therapy, three days a week, very intense therapy as well. And usually uh, after school, so you don't have to miss school for that. Yeah, yeah. there's some after school options as well. In the moment of a, a, s- a severe crisis where they need to go to a psychiatric facility, uh, most of the facilities look at a, about a 48-hour window. So if, you're, if your child tried to hurt themselves five days ago and you just decide to bring them to the ER five days later or more than 48 hours later, chances are we're not going to be able to get them admitted to a psychiatric facility because the, the, the imminent danger is no longer there. Okay. And so... If if you think it's a a crisis, don't don't hesitate to bring them to the ER or go to straight to one of the psychiatric hospitals because they can do that evaluation mm-hmm. and help you determine, you know, is it okay for me to bring my kid home? And because it's it's hard to make that decision as a parent, you know, because a lot of times parents say, oh, well, we'll watch our kids, but how long can you stay vigilant all night long if you think your child is suicidal? Who's going to stay up with them all night to make sure that once you mom and dad are asleep, you know, they're not going to do something. Yeah. Yeah. And so going to an emergency room in in that moment of crisis or directly to a psychiatric facility to where you can get some professional help to help determine those next steps is critical. I appreciate you breaking that down. And, you know, kind of a, a final question would be more in just the preventative proactive category. You know, what, what would be some proactive things that, uh, parents can do with their adolescent children or maybe even that a friend could do you know sometimes the the role of a friend in the life of their you know another teenage friend but what are some proactive preventative measures that that if they're they are done consistently and well could could help prevent suicide what are some some good practices force family time <laughs> family time force family time my yeah. wife is big <laughs> into family time mm-hmm. And the older kids get, they don't want to, they don't want to do what mom and dad want to do. They don't want to do what the younger kids want to do. They want to be out hanging out with their friends or whatever, but, um, spending time with your children and at whatever stage they're in, it's going to look differently. But 
the more disconnected our kids become from us, the less we even feel like I have a relationship with my child that I can talk about tough, tough subjects. And so if I just I'll automatically just kind of walk into the room, hey, let's talk about teen depression and suicide. Are you are you are you having those kind of thoughts? No, it's going to be like awkward and weird and they're not going to really open up. Like, No, I'm cool. I'm good. But you get out on the basketball court with with your son on a regular, not just this, oh, random dad just shows up and he wants to play basketball out of all of a sudden when, you know, he's never done that before because you have an agenda that you want to somehow bring up. But spending those genuine moments, um, making time to, to be in their world. So it might be getting you an Apple phone if you're, if you're a, a flip phone guy, and, <laughs> but you want to be involved in your, your kid's life. You know, it might be downloading a weird game on your phone and, and, and going side by side with them and spending that time together because you're creating a relationship where they realize you want to be in their world and involved with them and not just, you know, show up in the moment of crisis and all of a sudden be invested and interested. So I don't know, spending so good quality time. Some of the best times that, that, that we have are in the car. You know, just writing where they're a forced captive audience, you know, sitting right next to you yeah. and um, just making the most use of those those moments. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and even at that point, I I get to I, I enjoy cooking. So I, I like to uh, to do kind of prep the, the meals, the the, the dinner and, and the evening. And some sometimes I've noticed when they're they're kind of pathetic and they're, they're not a lot of effort I put in there that the teenage children are not as excited to come down and eat. But if I've, you know, prepared something that they like and that they enjoy more and more, I just realize how valuable even that time is of sitting around the dinner table together and, and just the conversation, the connection that happens there. I mean, even those are things that used to be very commonplace, but even that is something we have to fight for now. But I love your point about we've got to have regular rhythms of, just being together and connecting and, and, and I love your idea about, and then going to where their world is, whatever that game is they're playing or going out, like you said, playing basketball. Um, those are, those are huge. I love, I love those thoughts. Share anything on, on this one that you'd want to add in there? I think, um, well, I definitely agree with what you guys are talking about that time and, um, and, and activities and the value of talking while you're doing something versus sitting them down and having this serious conversation. Yeah. Um, but I think that another thing that is really important that we see so much in our community is that we don't want our kids to hurt. You know, we, we don't, we don't want them to hurt. Um, and I'm just as guilty as anyone, you know, I went through all that, all the things that I went through as a child and my husband has his own story as well. So we don't want, we don't want our kids to go through that. So we're going to, you know, try to prevent those things, prevent hurt. But in reality, it's allowing our kids to hurt and showing them that we have the confidence that they're going to be able to work through it. And so instead of us managing their struggles, coming alongside them, but letting them lead in, in that and showing that we have confidence that they are going to be able to walk through that. Um, my son is now 21 and that's one of the things that he shares that he's thankful for that, um, we didn't always rescue him out of his mess. But I will say that is one of the hardest, hardest things as a parent is to watch your child hurt because you just want to go in and fix it. Um, but they're going to need those tools, just like all of us that have had our own. There's not a human out there that hasn't had pain and the broken pieces of their heart. Um, 
And, you know, we got tools by walking through it. We developed our relationship with God by walking through it. Um, So we want to not leave them on their own, but we want to walk with them, but let them, you know, have, have to go through some of that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's so good. I think, I mean, I think of our tendencies, like you said, we either try to just fix it and try to create this a false utopia for them where they don't have any problems because we're taking care of all these issues for them. So they never learn or we, we tend to, because we're older, belittle their problems. You know, we're like, well, just suck it. It's not a big deal. Right. Like, why are you so upset about that? Rather than actually entering into that time with them that for them, it is a big deal right now and kind of sit, it's hard to sit in the pain sometimes. And yet that seems to make a difference. That's important for them to know that, we're willing to sit with them in that moment and, and, and hurt with them. Yeah. And that's just from a Christian perspective too, you know, you're, you're teaching them and modeling them these resiliency kind of uh, characteristics and, and total trust and God's going to walk with you through this. Um, and that starts at a young age. My uh, six year old, he, um, the, the other day, the, the 11-year-old, I think it was, or even the 13-year-old, she didn't want to go upstairs by herself in the dark. And so she was scared to go up there by herself. And she was, you know, because we wanted to go get her, get something. And, but the six-year-old was like, it's okay. You, God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit are with you up there. You're not alone. <laughs> you know, so teaching them they are not alone no matter what they're yeah. facing and going through. And the, they can bounce back. They can go through whatever the world and Satan and everything throws at them. Well, and I think watching us as parents, you know, not that we need to share everything about our lives with our children, their appropriate boundaries, but how we model the struggles that we go through um, and how, you know, they see us, how they see us walk through it with prayer or with journaling or with going to counseling. If we need to go to counseling or going to 12 step groups, if we need to go to 12 step groups, that sets, they're watching us. We're setting the stage. We're modeling that. Um, and even like you talked about friends or mentors, you know, like I talk about the nurse. I mean, she modeled that in my life and, you know, then I followed suit, you know? And so I think that, um, that makes a big difference because kids are watching what we do. So we don't need to, they don't need to be the one that we sit down and, you know, tell all our problems too, but, but enough to where they see that we're walking through these things too. Yeah. Yeah. Huge. Well, in kind of wrapping this up, I, I'd love just to, is there a, a final word that, you know, related to this topic you'd love to leave people with that are listening, or um, maybe it's just a word of encouragement, uh, something that you definitely wanted to get in there before we wrap up from either one of you guys. Say so in terms of the preventative piece, also don't, don't hesitate to get help early on. Don't wait till it's a crisis. Um, if there, if you see anything, there, there's a stigma around counseling and mental health, getting help for your mental health. But don't don't think that there's something wrong with you or your child if you if you need to sign them up for some counseling because that will that will start them off on a good path in life to to learn that to be equipped to face life's challenges before they get really overwhelming. Yeah. Good word. Good word. Final thought from you. I think to piggyback on that a little is that we tend as parents to think of our child struggling, that we've done something wrong, that we've, we've failed. 
But in reality, all human, I mean, we all struggle. And um, one time my daughter actually said something about counseling. She said, well, it's just helpful for life. Like, come on. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. (laughs) so I think that we think these dramatic things and we also think our kids are going to think these dramatic things about counseling or whatever, but we're, we're laying some of our own beliefs and our own fears and our own judgments of ourselves on top of that. So if you're a parent that has a child struggling, set that aside, get them the help that they need, walk through it. You know, at some point they're going to use that. They're, they're going to be the one to share their story with the one that that's going to help, you know, it's going to help them. That's how God's going to show up in that story for them. So, um, so it's not always a bad thing. Sometimes it's the very thing that your family really needed to have healing. Yeah, that's a great word. Well, obviously it's a topic we could continue to spend (laughs) hours talking about. It's a really important one, but, um, just to kind of begin to wrap up, if if uh, there's anyone listening that would love to learn more or would uh, like to connect with either of you guys, I'd love for you just to, if you want to share a resource or how they can connect, um, maybe start with you, Jeremy, um, and then over to you, Sherry, on how they could do that. Yeah, um, you can email me at Jeremy, J-E-R-E-M-Y, at mentalhealthresponse.com, and I'd be happy to get in dialogue with you and give you any kind of help help we can awesome thanks sherry so you can find us at mosaicsofmercy.com um it has our phone number there we're available nine to five monday through friday so if you're in a crisis and that's then you go to the emergency room (laughs) but um, we're available at that time and we will help connect you to counselors support groups treatment centers hospitals all those different things um so that's where you can find out more about us and how to contact me if you need to. Yeah. Fantastic. We want to thank you for uh, listening and uh, or watching today, this episode of Equip Online. And as Sherry just, just reminded us, Equip Online is a partnership between Stonebridge and Mosaics of Mercy, and they really are a fantastic resource. We're so grateful for, and I uh, want to encourage you to take advantage of that and, and, and take those steps that you need to take. If you'd like to learn more or watch previous episodes, you can also go to our website, equiponlinepodcast.com. And as always, our desire is that you would walk in the fullness of life that you've been created for. God bless. Hey, thanks so much for joining us. We are really passionate about mental health. If you found this episode helpful or beneficial in any way, we would love for you to hit that like button, subscribe to our channel, and ding the notification bell so that you never miss another episode. You can also subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. See you next time.